We have a uh, leadership meeting right after church today. Uh, be in here. There'll be extended child care for a few minutes. We'll get you out of here by 1230. Um, and so if you want to stay for that, we invite you to do so. Uh, we're going to jump back into our series, Fully Devoted. What does it mean to be a fully devoted follower of Christ? There are some signposts, some mile markers along the way that can help you understand where you are on the journey. It's a lifetime journey, but you need to do some self-evaluation. Last week, we talked about grace, radical grace, and we talked about growth. You need to be uh, committed to spiritual growth. Well, today we're going to get to the third signpost, and it is about um, groups. Now, Scripture says in Psalm 133, 1, it says, How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers, and you can put the word sisters in there as well, brothers and sisters live together in harmony. Relationships have an amazing power, a potential to transform our lives for good or for bad. One psychologist said it this way, It takes people to make people sick. It takes people to make people well. If you go all the way back to the life of Jesus and you start uh, studying his life and then the, his followers' lives and the church right after Jesus left the earth and, and how his disciples carried on the ministry of the church, you'll find that, that any time God's spirit was poured out in an amazing way, and you can, you can study church history all the way up until today, any time God's spirit comes and does a powerful work amongst his people, there's always this radical dedication, this radical commitment to doing life together. And the way we talk about that around here is we do that in small groups. If you'll get committed, get connected to a group of people who are committed to your spiritual growth, then you will take off spiritually. Now, in every group, there's two vital ingredients that must be present if we're going to grow spiritually. This is on your listening guide, or if you have a smartphone, you can check into version. And, and when it says search, just put in 75801, 802, 803, any one of those, and the title of the sermon will come up, and you can follow it on your smartphone. Two vital ingredients, grace and truth. Now, we talked about radical grace last week, and we said that grace means we love people like God loves them. We love them warts and all. Um, Grace allows people to come out of hiding, to quit pretending that their lives are all together, and they can bring their lives into the gaze of somebody who loves them and wants better for them, loves them too much to leave them where they are. Grace reflects Christ's loving and forgiving nature. But there's another side of the coin that we have to um, look at, and that's truth. Jesus spoke the truth. In fact, how could he not speak the truth? First of all, he's God's son. But he also said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus said truth is not some concept that you go out there and you try to search the earth for. Truth is a person. He has a name. It's Jesus Christ. And you do not understand the truth of your situation until you have heard from Jesus Christ, until you've heard from truth himself. And so um, one side of the coin is Jesus, of, his, of, of the character of Jesus is his grace. The other side of that coin is his holiness and his righteousness. And his holiness and righteousness come out in truth. Now, Christ's truth gives us direction. We talked about this last year when we did the uh, weird series. We said that there's a road, this huge, broad road that leads to destruction. And Jesus said many people are on that road. But we said there's this very narrow way that leads to life. And, and God's word is that. Jesus said that, that, that he would lead you to life and that you would have life more abundantly. If we're going to figure out what that means, we've got to go to God's word. Because in Psalm 119, it says, your word is a lamp unto my feet. It's a light for my path. So his truth provides, uh, points us to the direction of going down this narrow road that leads to life. But his truth also provides guardrails and helps us understand how we don't get off of this, this narrow path, how we go towards God. And if we'll stay on that path, we will grow spiritually. And, and, uh, 
His truth provides those boundaries and his truth forces us to look at our deepest motivations. Here's what God's word says in Hebrews 4.12. God's word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword and it cuts us deep as the place where soul and spirit meet, the place where joints and marrow meet. God's word judges persons, uh, a person's thoughts and intentions. Now, most of us aren't balanced like Jesus. And so I've got a couple of things up here to help me. Um, some of us are on one extreme or the other. On one extreme, there's the gracious truth avoiders. Now, that's what this heart, I gave this to Rachel for uh, Valentine's Day a couple years ago, and um, it says love on it. And so let me just ask you, let's, let's do a little survey so we'll understand that very few of us are in the middle. Almost all of us are on one, ex- one end of the extreme or the other. How many of you would rather vomit than, than, than confront somebody about something they've done wrong? Let me see your hands. Some of you are not even going to raise your hands. You're like, no, that's confrontation. I can't do that. All right, so we'll see in a minute that some of y'all just are neither, but you just didn't raise your hand. Okay, so there's the gracious truth avoiders. For these folks, it's much easier to encourage. It's much easier to find the positive things in others but they, because they just can't stand confrontation. And, and these folks pretend things are okay. Sometimes they'll pretend that sin is, is really okay. Sometimes they'll pretend that actions don't matter, that there's no consequences. And they'll pretend that they're really not angry or hurt. And, and they may think of themselves and they're probably thought of as very gracious, very loving people, but they're quite literally missing the truth. And truth is necessary if we're going to have spiritual transformation. All right. On the other end of the spectrum are the graceless truth inflictors. How many of you tend to be on the side of, I tell the truth, Come hell or high water. These people are going to throw their hands up. They're proud of it. You know, they hurt people, but you know, it's for their own good. You know, okay. All right. On the other end of the spectrum, graceless truth inflictors. Now to their credit, they don't want to pretend spiritual growth is a big thing. They take it very seriously, but too little effort. If you're, if you're a truth inflictor, too little effort is given to speaking the truth in love. And the Bible says we're supposed to speak the truth in love. They tend to lack empathy. They don't put themselves in the other people's uh, place. In standing up for what's right, their love of the truth may drown out that truth because they do not love the one on whom they are inflicting truth. Do you understand what I'm saying? If It's that old saying, if people don't care how much you know if they don't know how much you care. You don't care for someone, they're not going to listen to you. So what we're saying is relationships that have the greatest impact on people's lives are the ones that that share both grace and truth over a long period of time. Only in the shelter of grace are we free to admit our weaknesses and, and stop pretending that we're more mature than we really are. Only in the light of truth does God cut through to our quick of our being, of who we are, and we can quit this game of self-deception and, and uh, excuses, and we can tap into the power of God's word. Now, here's, here's the difference between the Bible and, and self-help books. Do you know what the difference is? Self-help books have a lot of great steps, a lot of suggestions. God's word, according to Hebrews 4.12, is living and active, and there is power. The reason you can read a self-help book and get no change is because there's no power there. You can read God's word and you can discover who you are in God's sight and, and you can tap into God's power to truly change your life. Now, I want to just show you a couple of examples of how Jesus uh, shared both grace and truth. 
Um, and I'm going to reference just a couple of them. You may want to write these down and, and read them later. John 8, 3 through 11. Now, this is the story of the woman caught in adultery. And, and most of you know this story if you don't go and read it later. But what happens is they, brag, they bring her to Jesus and the law said that they should stone her right there. Pick up rocks, throw her at her until she dies, which I can't even imagine that type of execution. But because she was guilty, the truth inflictor said, let's kill her now, Jesus. And they were trying to ta- trap Jesus in this thing. And if you remember the story, you know that Jesus bent down and he started drawing in the dirt and they kept pressuring him and pressuring him. And he said, okay, let's do this. Those of you who are without sin, you pick up the rocks, you be the first to condemn this woman. He goes back to drawing. And you remember what it said, the older ones left first and before long, everybody's gone. Jesus looks at the woman who was guilty of sin and he says to her, where are those who condemn you? And she said, there's not any here. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now let me ask you, what did Jesus pour out on her? Did he pour out grace or truth? I think it's both. Trick question. Because he poured out grace like crazy, and then what did he call her actions at the end? Sin. He knew exactly what he needed to say to her, and he was a gracious man, and he poured out grace and truth. And I think the woman was changed because of this encounter with Jesus Christ. Now, what did he give to the, the people who, who drug her before him? Was it grace or truth? Honestly, I think it was both. Another trick question. Because what did he do? He didn't come out and and shake his finger in their face. He didn't say, I'm going to call down fire from heaven and destroy you right here. He just drew in the dirt and he said, okay, those of you who are without sin, cast the first stone. And I think people went, oh no. And they began to walk off. So I think he gave both to them. All right, another example. This one's easier. Luke 18, 18. The, The rich young ruler. Remember, he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. Don't steal. Honor your father and mother. And he goes, oh, Jesus, I've done all of those since I was young. And and Jesus says to him, okay, go and sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor and come follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. And the Bible says he went away very sad because he was very rich. Did Jesus inflict grace or truth? Both. There you go. He's trying to help you out. He inflicted both because he said, well, you know what the scripture says. And the guy says, ah, I got that down, Jesus. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good with all those. And Jesus said, let's cut to the chase here. You're tied up in your possessions and it's going to keep you from going to heaven. And, and we don't know if that guy ever repented and, and came to heaven. So he inflicted both. Now, this last one is very obvious and it's only one. And I think you'll understand. I'm going to read this one. Mark 7, 5 through 9. So the Pharisees and teachers of religious law ask him, why don't your disciples follow the age-old tradition, our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Jesus replied, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. Did Did he offer grace or truth? holy cow, he just came out whacking, right? These were the religious people. These are the people who who had memorized most, if not all, of the Old Testament, which is all they had at that time. They knew it, and they they were substituting their own traditions for God's law, and Jesus came out swinging. And the only people that he he inflicted mainly truth on was the religious leaders. Most of the time, there was a balance of grace and truth. And I want you to realize, God could have chosen any method he wanted to, to infuse grace and truth in your life. And do you know what method he chose more than any other? Over and over, God has chosen to use a motley group of flawed, sin-stained people 
in order to infuse grace and truth into your lives. And this is so risky because it means that human beings, you and I, have to use wisdom and discernment when it comes to relationships and problems that we're facing. And anytime you expect humans to be wise and discerning, that's risky. <laughs> but the Bible's very clear. It says in 1 John 2, 6, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. So what, what I want you to realize, if you claim to be a Christ follower, you should be known for the same things that Jesus was known for. Jesus was known for grace, and Jesus was known for truth. And any time a church figures this out, and they become a place where grace and truth both flow freely, amazing things begin to happen. So if you are a truth teller, let's go back. Let me see again. How many of you are truth tellers? You tend to lean on the side of truth whether it hurts somebody or not. Let me give you some cautions from Scripture. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another. Some of you may need to go read the definitions of those words, and, and you may need to ask some grace providers what those words mean. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Here's the key. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Did you deserve forgiveness? Nope. So we don't have an option about whether we forgive. Here's another one, Luke 6, 41 and 42. Why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own eye? How can you think of saying, friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. This is Jesus talking, by the way. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. So the Bible is saying we need to be very careful about how we go to someone speaking the truth in love. If you're going to go tell someone something, you do not have to preface it with, I'm coming to you in love, and then waste them because then you've, you've ruined everything. The way you come to someone will demonstrate to them whether you love them or not. Now, if, if you're grace providers, how many of you are grace providers? All right, three. <sighs> I'm working here. If you're on the grace side, let me give you some caution from Scripture. Luke chapter 3 says, if another, brother, another believer sins, what's that next word? Hello? Rebuke. rebuke. Is that a kind, compassionate word? Sometimes a rebuke is the, is the most loving thing that you can do for someone. Rebuke that person. Then if there is repentance, forgive. Here's another one, 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently what? What's the next word? And encourage your people with good teaching. Here's my suggestion to you. If, if you're not in a small group, I'm just going to tell you, you cannot grow to where God wants you to go. You're not going to get to the full measure of maturity in the faith unless you're in a group. And if you don't want to be in a group, if you're not in a group at New Life, you just don't want to be in one. We have triads that meet. We've still got some multiply books out there. We've got triads that meet and they, they uh, meet around your schedule. That's three people who get together to read through this book and discover what it means to be a disciple. And I, can I tell you that you are not a follower of Christ until you make followers followers of Christ. So a lot of people don't ever get to this mile marker. They never get involved in groups. They never start discipling other people. We're trying to train as many people as possible to disciple others, to make disciples. And this walks you through it. It's the easiest thing you've ever done. You read one chapter, you get together with two other people, you discuss that chapter. After a while, you begin to pray and you ask God to bring other people into your life that you can begin walking through the process. This is an effort that if we get it, it doesn't take long for our entire church to become disciple makers, which sounds like the kingdom of God. It sounds like Acts chapter 2, 
which is what I want to be a part of, an Acts 2 type church. We have small groups that meet at night. We have men's group that meets on Monday night. Our men's group just finished this morning. We finished 24 weeks of the quest for authentic manhood. We've got a women's group that meets on Thursday nights. There are groups, if you want to be involved and you want to get to this mile marker and go beyond, you need to get involved, but you have to make that choice. Next thing we're going to talk about, the next mile marker is spiritual gifts. Years ago, I was at a conference and I heard this pastor share this story. And then I reread the story this week in one of the books that I have. Listen to this. He says, many years ago, my grandfather phoned my mother and offered her some dishes. My grandmother had recently died and he found a box full of old blue dishes in the attic. He was going to give them to the Salvation Army until he remembered that my mother liked the color blue. So he thought he'd see if she had a use for them. She went into the attic expecting junk and found instead beautiful handcrafted china with forget-me-not pattern, 24-karat gold trim, and inlaid mother-of-pearl cups. They had been made in a factory in Bavaria that was destroyed in World War II, so they were quite literally irreplaceable. And, and my mom had never seen them before, he says. Over the next few months, my mom and, and, and uh, she and my father pieced together the story. My grandmother had received a dish here or a cup there, growing up. They were so valuable that she put them in a box and waited for an occasion special enough to warrant using them. But in true Swedish fashion, nothing that special ever happened. The gift never made it out of the box. My mom had never seen these incredible dishes. Well, most Christians either don't know they have a gift from God or they've never opened the gift. If you have a gift that's sitting under a tree all year round, does that gift do you any good? What if it's the most useful gift you've ever received in your life? Does it help you? Does it help your family if you don't open it? Most Christians, their gifts are still wrapped up in a box. They've never seen the light of day. And so we need to figure out real quickly what what gifts are. I've got three things there on your listening guide. Every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. I'm going to fly through these. Gifts are given by God. He determines what gift you get, not you. Gifts are are to be used to build up His kingdom. Now, if someone doesn't know they have a gift, are they using that gift in serving the kingdom of God? The answer is no. So the church suffers and never reaches its full potential. And that's pretty sad. Paul tells us the purpose of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. And, and I, I changed this this morning to the New Living Translation. I had the NIV. That's what's on your listening guide. But this is the New Living up here. And on, on uh, I think it's on, um, I don't remember if it's on you version as the living, New Living. But here's what the New Living says. It's just a little easier to understand. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. How many Christians get a spiritual gift according to this verse? Every one. A spiritual gift is given to each one. So in in God's family, everyone is gifted. Whether the gifts are public and obvious or whether they are private behind the scenes, that means you're a specialist in some area of ministry. And the Christian life was never intended to be one where you just sit and soak up somebody's preaching. It was one where you kneel and you serve. In John chapter 13, Jesus wanted to teach his disciples about servanthood. They were gathered for the Passover meal. This was right before he was crucified on the cross. And as they waited, they knew, like everyone in that day would know, that someone needed to start washing feet. Now, they walked around in sandals, and, and they laid down. They, they didn't have tables like this with chairs and stuff. They would have pillows and, and blankets, things like that, on the floor. And there would be this, this table, and they would lay. And so you didn't want somebody's muddy, stinky feet sticking in your face. So the first thing that would happen when you would come into a meal is a servant would come and clean your feet. So they're all sitting around with these mud-caked feet, and they're thinking, the least, the least is who is supposed to come and wash my feet. 
And you remember that the disciples, they, they argued over who was greatest in the kingdom of God. They never argued over who was the least. Nobody, nobody was claiming, oh, I'm last, I'm last. It's all on me. I'll do it, I got it. No. And, and I think most of us can relate to that. None of us believes that we're first in the kingdom of God. There's always somebody better, a better Christ follower than us. There's always somebody that we can look up to, but we sure don't want to be last. And so they're sitting around, nobody's getting up. And Jesus gets up, puts a towel actually around his waist, gets a, bottle, a, a basin of water, a bowl of water, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And can you imagine the king of kings bowing down to wash your feet? And with this simple act, he forever redefined greatness. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Sweep the floor. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Take out the trash. I've got an idea for you. You want to be great in God's eyes? Change a dirty diaper or sit back there and rock the child of a single mom so that she can come in here and worship the king of kings in peace. It may be the only peace she gets all week. It may be the only adult conversation she gets all week. Do something for someone else in the kingdom of God. And as you do the little things, God begins to mold and shape your heart and he begins to show you an area that you're gifted in and he begins to give you a passion for ministry in the kingdom of God. No one has ever, no one has ever done great things for the kingdom of God without doing little things first. It's that whole principle. If you, if you can be trusted in little things, you can be trusted in much. If you can't be trusted in little things, nobody's gonna trust you with big things. Jesus calls every one of us to this ministry of the towel and here's the key. This has as much to do with, with what he wants to do in you, the work he wants to do in you, as with the work he wants to do through you. People don't get this. Yes, if we don't serve, uh, if we don't use our spiritual gifts, it hurts others, but it hurts us as well. The greatest weakness is new li- at New Life is not that we don't know enough of the Bible. It's that we don't do enough of what we already know. If you really want to grow in the kingdom of God, you cannot take service lightly. You cannot casually date the bride of Christ, which is what the church is. You firmly plant your life in an area of ministry at New Life, and you pray one of the most dangerous prayers you can ever pray, and it's God, use me. When God finds someone who is humble and says, use me however you see fit, God springs into action, and he does some supernatural things. You have to discover your gift. It's, It's your job to discover your gift if you're a Christ follower, and it's your job to choose to use that gift through serving. Now, the last mile market we're going to look at today is good stewardship. And this is all about recognizing that you're a manager. Even the breath you have is not yours. You do not own it. The next breath you take is a gift from God. That body that that you carry around, that is a gift from God. If it's yours, how come you don't get to keep it? Anybody get to keep their their body? What do we do with, with bodies when they die? We put them in the ground because they're temporary. They were never intended to be permanent. And so this step is all about recognizing that that you're a manager of the life, the talents, the treasure that God has given you. And in case you hadn't noticed, every human being is a treasuring person. Every human being treasures something. I read a story this week, and I want to share it with you to, to kind of point this out. This man named Robert Fulgham tells about his daughter Molly, just of school age, had become enthusiastic about packing the day's lunches for her brothers and her father. One morning, she handed out her, father's two, handed her father two bags as she was about to leave, one regular lunch sack and one secure with duct tape, staples, and paper clips. In a hurry to get to work, he didn't ask for an explanation. That afternoon, while hurriedly eating his lunch, he tore open the well-secured bag Molly had given him and shook out the contents. Outspilled two hair ribbons, three small stones, a plastic dinosaur, a pencil stub, a tiny seashell, and a handful of other childish articles. 
momentarily charmed, he hustled off to, an important, to the important business of the afternoon, sweeping both brown bags into the trash can, leftover lunch, Molly's junk, and all. There wasn't anything there I needed, he said. Later, he had a discussion with Molly. Where's my bag? What bag? You know, the one I gave you this morning. Well, I left it at the office. Why? Those are my things in the sack, Daddy, the ones I really like. I thought you might like to play with them, but now I want them back. He said, oh. And then he said, "Uh uh-oh. Molly had given me her treasures, all that a seven-year-old held dear, love in a paper sack, and I'd missed it. Not only missed it, but had thrown it in the trash can because there wasn't anything in there I needed. He said, it wasn't the first or the last time I felt my daddy permit was about to run out. That night, he made the long drive back to the office and got there just ahead of the janitor. He combed through the trash, and one by one, he retrieved the bag and its treasures, now dotted with mustard and smelling of onions. He carried them home and carefully returned them to Molly the next day. No questions were asked or explanations given. To my surprise, he says, Molly gave me the bag once again several days later. Same ratty bag, same stuff inside. I felt forgiven and trusted and loved. Over several months, the bag went with me from time to time. I was never clear why I did or did not get the bag on a given day. In time, Molly turned her attention to other things. She found other treasures, lost interest in the game, and and just grew up. Me, I was left holding the bag. She gave it to me one morning and never asked for its return. So the worn paper bag is there in my box, left over from a time when a child said, Here, this is the best I've got. Take it. It's yours. Such as I have, give I to thee. I have, I have my own little bag, and so do you. I choose what goes in my bag. You choose what goes in your bag. And some of us put houses, we put jewels, we put cars, we put... I'll tell you that, that Janie, Caleb... Rachel and Hannah are in my bag because I treasure them. They may not always know it, but, but I'd do anything for them. I've given my life to this church, so the church is in the bag. And there's other things. It, it doesn't mean it's all spiritual things. There's lots of stuff in, in my bag. You choose what goes into your bag. Here's the thing, though. Jesus warned, be very careful what goes in your bag. Be very careful what you treasure And I'm going to tell you why. This comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Jesus is speaking. He says, don't store up for treasures here on earth. Don't don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Whatever's in your bag, that's where your heart goes. That's where your emotions flow. Jesus doesn't say this to make us feel bad. He's just stating an obvious point. What's in your bag reveals what you treasure. But here's the cool thing about the kingdom of God. What you choose to put in your bag can also shape your heart and your life in the future. Now, whatever, um, whatever we put in there, wouldn't you want, when God examines your life, wouldn't you want God to say, those are the things that I treasure that you're putting in your life? Our goal should be to have the same things, to treasure the same things that God treasures. And, and if you ask, what does God treasure? Well, if you go all the way back to Genesis, we do this all the time, we go back to the beginning. If you go back to when God started creating, you remember he created the heavens and the earth and he said, it is good. 
He created um, plants, and he said, it is good. He, he separated the, the land from the water, and he said, it is good. He, he put the stars in the heaven, put the sun, and he, he created all this stuff, and he kept saying, it's good. He created land animals. It was good. He created sea animals. It was good. He created the birds of the air. It was good. And then, when he gets to man and woman, he creates man and woman, and he says, it is very good. To me, that, that points out that, that God treasures every human life. And, and if we're going to be like him, means we need to develop the kind of heart that Jesus had. God prizes people, the only creatures who possess his image. He treasures each one of us. And so we got to act like Jesus. If the Bible says we're, we're supposed to live like Jesus did, so we're supposed to have the same type of attitude that Jesus did towards the poor, towards the hungry, towards the helpless, towards victims of injustice. It means we help people regardless of their race or their culture. It means helping the church reach more people with the good news that, that Jesus is alive. That's what the Bible talks about. The gospel, the good news, Jesus conquered death. So we don't have to be afraid of death. We can live forever in a place called heaven with the king of kings if we choose to accept the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. God wants my bag to be filled with things that matter to him. So people matter to God. The church matters to God. Your family matters to God. Your neighbors matter to God. What is in this bag reveals your treasure, but it can also shape your heart and, and make your emotions begin to flow to something else. Because, see, we come out of the womb, we're naturally shaped by greed and possessions. So we need a tangible practice that says, money, you can't be God in my life today. And God begins to shape your heart, reshape your heart to look more like his. Every time you write a check to advance God's kingdom, you remind yourself that God's on the throne and not money. Every time you give some of your time to build up the kingdom of God, your emotions begin to flow to the kingdom of God. Every time you use your spiritual gift to serve the bride of Christ, not only does the kingdom grow, but your heart grows too. You see, our world is preoccupied with increasing your standard of living, but the kingdom of God is all about increasing your standard of giving. You give your time, your talents, your treasure to the kingdom of God, and God says he will multiply that, and someday when you walk into heaven, somebody will greet you and say, you did this, I'm here because you gave, because you treasured the kingdom. God doesn't want your money, he doesn't want your possessions, he wants your heart. So be very, very careful what you put in your bag. In the end, the question of good stewardship, and actually this is step number five, because this is, this is the, a matter of the heart. When, when you start ordering your life around God, usually the last thing that people come to is this whole thing of, of my time, my talents, and my treasure, because they think it's theirs. They think it belongs to them. God could take it anytime he wanted to. The idea of good stewardship is this. Will you come to God with your little bag, whatever is in it, and with childlike love say, here it is. This is the best I've got. You can have it. Such as I have, give I to thee. Because isn't that what Jesus Christ said to each of you when he hung on the cross? It's the best I got. You can have it. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for your love and your grace. And we don't ever want to stop God from growing. May you reveal the plans of the enemy who wants to st stunt our growth, who wants to stunt everything about our spiritual life so that others, quite honestly, are blocked from heaven and end up in hell.
And would you cause us, Lord, to examine our hearts and figure out where we are on this journey to become fully devoted followers of Christ? And would you help us take a step forward? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.